Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Matt Kirshen, who is a friend of the podcast and a friend of mine. We spoke about indecision, uh, criticism of people, as particularly performers and comedians. We talk about different modes of behaviour. Depending on who you are talking to, we talked about meeting podcast fans after gigs because he has a podcast called Probably Science and he's also a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I think it is interesting and insightful. Um, Even though it is two comedians talking in some ways about comedy, I think there's more to it than that. Um, What else? Oh, yes, I have promised that I will be better about this. So I wanted to say thank you very much to everyone who's been subscribing on Patreon, to my regular subscribers, to the people who've started uh, being subscribers in January. I don't know if it's the new year or my birthday, but there's been like a massive surge or if it's the fact that I've now put up a calendar, uh, which makes it easier if you're at the higher levels of subscription to organize FaceTime calls. Uh, that's calendly.com slash tea with Alice, all one word, calendly, C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y dot com slash tea with Alice if you are one of those subscribers Uh, but thank you for that if you are welcome Uh, it's a great time and um, what else I yes I I have tickets available for my new show for Mythos they are for Sydney Melbourne and Perth if you're in Australia there will be more coming up but those ones are available on the website my website alicefraser.com now and on the websites of the various fringes and comedy festivals that those are and uh, I, I have merch available on my website. Listen to the trilogy if you haven't already. I assume you have already. Uh, email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com if you have something to say or tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E if you have something shorter to say. Uh, uh, the Resistance is available on, on Amazon Prime and um, my my uh, documentaries are also available on audible.com if uh, on audible on on the audiobook app and on uh, the it, they're available in the audible original section if you are a subscriber to that if you're not I'll, I will see if I can get the audio somehow but I, I think it's unlikely I'll have to go back and read the contract thank you so much to Ben Wren who has um, been helping with my sound quality I know some people are now going back into the archives and meeting the uh, demon of my very quiet episodes I can only um, say, I can only apologise, say that I wasn't trained in audio and I was doing it on a computer which had really good speakers, so I, I didn't want it to be too loud um, for you and I didn't know that it would not be loud enough for some of you. So I, I do apologise for that. There are some episodes, if you go back into the archives, that are too quiet and I, I don't know how to fix them. If I can, I will, and then I'll let you know when that happens. I feel like this is plenty of rambling and I've covered most of the things if not all of the things uh, thanking you for supporting me in both either financial or non-financial ways telling people about the podcast tweeting about it reviews all of that stuff that is actually a big deal Um, I know it can sort of become rote for people saying thank you and 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 plugging their things Um, but particularly, you know, things like telling people about the show or leaving a review or supporting it on Patreon, those things actually make a massive difference and have a real impact on my happiness in a day-to-day way and on my work in a more practical way. So, yeah, thank you for that. All right. I'm getting sappy. I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. So, uh, who are you and what are you drinking? I'm Matt Kirshen and I'm drinking tea. Yes, you're an uh, English breakfast with a splash of milk. That's exactly what it is. And I, I don't feel self-conscious asking for that when I'm here, whereas when I'm in America... <laughs> which is where I normally am, which is where I was last time I did the show. I, uh, like, I consistently, first, even ordering tea in an American, like, hot tea in an American restaurant, I feel like I'm just walking in as a stereotype. And then yeah. normally they list the only black tea option as English breakfast. Yes. And I always go, like, oh, I can have a tea, hot tea, please. And they go, which one? And I go, um, uh, the, the breakfast one. And yeah. they'll, they'll go like, English breakfast, yes. Yes, that's the one. I'm drinking an Opium Hill, 
which is a green tea from Thailand. Which, which should be pointed out, doesn't have opium in it. No, it does not have opium. It's a, I think it's technically a blue tea. What is that? Uh, I don't know. But maybe it has pea flower in it or something. It's got a slightly blue cast to the greenness. And uh, Andy Zaltzman gave it to me for Christmas last year, and I'm still working my way through it. It's very oh, nice. Lovely. It's a very nice tea. It feels like something that you'd have trouble ordering internationally just because the name sounds... <laughs> like it should be seized at the border. Yes. Yeah. I, I assume it, it grows near poppies. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It's very nice tea. I don't it ask really too many questions. It goes really nicely with the child bride cookies. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> yep. Exactly. Uh, so what have you been wrestling with? Oh, God. Why did you just drop this on me? Well, I told you like 10 you, minutes ago. You did tell me 10 fair, minutes ago. Which I, maybe I should have told you before that. But I mean, I wrestle with indecision. Yes. That's a good one. Is that, is that a cop-out? Yes, <laughs> was, that is also a cop-out. It's, <laughs> it's a cop-out, but it's also the truth. And I think increasingly so. I, I think... Do you find that the amount of public criticism that... I, I find it increasingly hard to put stuff out. Yes. Yeah. Because I've always been an indecisive person, mm -hmm. but... I think in increasingly, because everything you now do is recorded and it is out there, yes. like, except for live comedy gigs, live stand-up Which, I mean, as Louis C.K. most recently discovered, is that not is not a guarantee. Case. That is also the case. I'm luckily neither famous nor infamous enough to have some... I, although I have had entire stand-up sets leaked. There's a, I think, still on YouTube, because someone was like, said to me that day, oh, I saw your, your, your Alaska show on the internet. It was great or whatever. And they're being complimentary. They're being really nice. But I was like, I've never put an Alaska... And it turns out someone... I did a show in Anchorage and someone managed to surreptitiously film the entire... And it was a headline set. So I was doing 50 minutes or something. So 50 minutes of my stand-up just with a phone camera on the, in the corner of the stage is just on YouTube still. I probably shouldn't even be mentioning this because it's just that. Because now... You should do it. I'm, well, I mean, it devalues your work to a certain degree in it, that... It does, but also I've recently found myself so... I put out an album years ago and I'm due to put a new one out and I actually recorded some stuff and then I got so like crippled with the indecision of the editing of it and wanting it to be perfect that it still isn't out because I've just been sitting on it. Yes, I mean, I've started to not do that. I was like that for a long time and there's not a lot of my stand-up that's kind of on YouTube that I want up there uh -huh. but the, that I've put out there because of that... And it's weird because normally once once I bite the bullet and it goes out, I'm actually normally fine with it. And there's, you know, I'll listen back to my first album and bits of it, I'm like, ah, oh, that's not how I would do that anymore. Or I've improved as a comic or I've changed as a comic or my perspective has changed. Mm. But then other bits go, oh, that's just, that's a really nice chunk of material. I, I, I'm happy it's out there. Yeah. And it's, and I'm not as, it's weirdly, I'm simultaneously not as precious about my work as I used to be. Yes. In terms of, Oh, you can't. You got to protect your material, and if it goes out there, it's gone forever, and you got to sit on it. No, I'm like, no, we need to get stuff out there now because that's what everyone's doing. And yes. if you don't, you get left behind. But simultaneously, I have I'm much less protective, but also much more crippled by perfectionism. And is it just perfectionism? Moment. Is it perfectionism, or is it also this kind of change in the culture of being held to account? No, I for... don't think so. I. Th I, I don't know, because even I'm thinking about the material on that CD, and, I, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, like, Seinfeld kind of, I'm not Seinfeld-type material, where it's, like, there's little that would ever, although even still, weirdly, he ended up saying, oh, I can't say this on stage anymore. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad example, but I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not just, like, the minutiae of, of life. I will talk about issues and I'm sure I've said things in the past that I now look back on. I would look back on and go, ah, that's not how I now feel about that. And I, I wouldn't have put it that way. And I, but I, at the same time, no, that's not what makes me worried. What makes me more worried is putting out something that I then feel once it's out, isn't as good as the first album. Or... Yeah. Well, I think there's sort of, I mean, in some ways, the solution to that is the same, that there's two, those two problems have the same solution, which is if you continually put stuff out where your perspective is changing, and I, I, I mean, this is my 
logic on it and it may at some point when I reach a certain level of fame, if I reach a certain level of fame, come back and bite me. Yeah. But that I'm always, you know, quite open about my uncertainties or I'll express an opinion and I'll kind of uh, give it more nuance or some, you know, kind of explore it more broadly in a way that I think makes it difficult or I hope makes it difficult for people to go, you said this. And I will say, well, yeah, I said that in the context of this and it's actually... If if that's if that whole process is more open, then it's more difficult for people to uh, stereotype you or put you in a box. Yes, and I, and I think the same is also true. If you know, the more stuff you put out there, and the more freely you put stuff out there, the less importance gets put on one individual release. Yes, but you know, it, there's definitely in the back of your mind that's still that same mindset of the comics that you really loved growing up or really got into, who have those like two or three perfect albums or specials whatever or, yeah. or videos depending on how you consumed comedy where but also that doesn't that doesn't exist that's anymore. not a thing anymore now it's like no everything you've there's so much content and i do you know i do a podcast every week and that obviously is not honed and perfected material mm. but there are now between that and me guesting on other podcasts there are thousands of hours of me talking <laughs> <laughs> that in a vaguely comedic sense that is that is out there in the public domain. Yeah. So there's that. That's all out there. But in terms of pure stand-up, there's that one album and a few and various scattered TV sets. Mm. Some of the material overlapping with that album, some of them not. And a few like and a few YouTube and some YouTube videos from various sets and some bootleg videos mm. <laughs> that people have filmed in Alaska without permission. But um but there, there still is weirdly that importance of that feeling of like, fuck, if I, I, I've got to commit to this, this hour of material and call this an album and put it out. Yes, and and and, that, and that's true of other things as well. It's not just the album, but I definitely find that sometimes that indecision or but you also fear write- of failure getting in the way of actually achieving or putting stuff out there yeah i understand that i mean you write for a weekly television show yeah well that's a that's a different thing again because there's so many creators put in there's there's a bunch of people involved but the good thing about that is we have a hard deadline yeah you know we record at we start the recording at twelve forty-five on a tuesday afternoon mm. and no matter what you've got ready no matter what happens by by like eleven thirty, which is when the final script revisions are done. Yeah. Eleven thirty on Tuesday mornings. That has to be the version of this whatever the best version of the script is at that point is the thing that Jim is gonna say out loud into a camera. Yeah. And and damned damned if we don't you know, you're just okay. That's it. You yeah. gotta go. But that's but somehow that hasn't translated into making you feel more comfortable in fact less comfortable with the solo. But also that's a weekly you know, we've put out it's it's a newish show. We've already but we put out fifty episodes. So again, you're sort of churning it out. Mm. Um it doesn't have that same importance. And also, you know, it's you, you know, it's a it's a team effort, whereas stand up is such a personal thing. That is true, and it is more of a representation of yourself that you're putting out there. Yes. And particularly if there isn't a lot of things, as you say, of he, your material out there, then these yeah. are the things that represent you in the public even, eye. Even Jim, like his stand-up specials are him. Mm. Like his stand-up specials have everything, you know, a, f- a friend might give him a tag or something or say something that sparks an idea, but mm. basically everything he says on his stand-up specials is him, and it really feels like this is him and his voice. And... Whereas his TV show, even though his name's in the title and he's the one saying the words, it's, I think, understood generally far more that the words he says are the product of a process and a team producing this thing. Yeah. So even that for him, I'm sure, is like, I'm sure he's far less precious about the TV show. Not that he doesn't want it to be good, because obviously his name's on it and he's the one saying the words and he wants it to be as good as possible. Mm. But I think he's far less precious about everything has to be like this is me and this is who i am and this is how i feel yeah because it's understood that no this is how the team that you are at the helm of feels yeah and this is the team's work that you are the final say and the final word on but it's like you know this is the this is that you're the actor of of a collaborative voice yeah Uh, i'm 
I, but I don't, I don't know whether it's not just stand up. Like that's definitely something, and I don't know if that's something that's changed more. If it's increasingly affected in the the way, I was actually weirdly talking about this on a podcast a couple of days ago, uh, Nick and Kerry's podcast about it was sparked by there was a tweet by Greg Jenner who wrote on hol- who wrote horrible histories and oh yes, uh, but he was basically saying, hey, uh, if you are cr- if you want to criticize someone's writing or music or comedy or whatever, mm. don't at don't at reply include them because that's a dick move. Yeah. And and that and had people arguing underneath, and you're like, no, it really is. And people go, well, if you can't take criticism or whatever, you're like, no. Firstly, it's different. Secondly, the the amount of access you have to criticism, and or the amount that criticism has access to you, is so much greater now than it was ten years ago. Yes. Yeah. And the level to which people think their criticism needs to rise to yes. be worth articulating. So if you really, really don't like something. And you see someone in the street, say, I hate Stephen King. That's not real. I think he's a fine writer. But say, I, I really don't like his books. If I saw Stephen King in the supermarket, I would not go up and go, by the way, I don't like your books. Yes. I think you should know that. I think that they're self-indulgent and needlessly grisly and they gave me nightmares, so up yours. But if, if for example, you read a Stephen King book and it had traumatised you for a month, you might then go up to him and go, hey, man, by the way, I don't like your work. Yeah. It, you know, it wrecked my but life. It would still be a very weird thing to do. I, I've only had direct criticism like that a few times. Like, I do remember after, after a terrible gig in Newcastle at a famously difficult club that was not helped by the fire alarm going off twice in my set. <laughs> but a, a group who were on a stag night running into me in the town centre the next day. Oh, God. Because it was a Friday, Saturday, and the Friday... So the Friday night was just a nightmare gig. And then the Saturday afternoon, I was walking through the town centre with a friend of mine who lived in Newcastle. Mm-mm. And a guy who... And they were all drinking in the pub. But it was like a pub that had a sort of outside front patio that opened onto the onto the streets. Yeah. And it was going like, hey, it was... And he got like, you were fucking shite. <laughs> like, just coming up to you. Like, and then his friend pulling him away and goes, sorry, mate, it was a... Whatever. Yeah, but like, but- that's that was a real rarity. Yeah, that is a that rarity. someone would and actually a- have the gall to... Not even in the moment, but like the next day, go up to you and. But even his friend in that moment realized that was a rude thing to do. A rude, yeah, right? like a really weird and unpleasant thing to do. So, which is, I think, an interesting discussion that Greg Jenner put up this post, and people were saying not just that it, not just that they were entitled to do it, because of course they're entitled to do that. That's not what he's arguing against, but that it's not rude. Yes. So yeah, he well the people. No, people were basically yeah. I think, I think people were claiming that it's not rude to do that. You know, when you say people are entitled to do it, uh, in the most literal sense, yes, they yes. are entitled to. People are like entitled to do anything that isn't like actively hate speech or threat or yeah. murder or whatever. You know, physical violence or you know, they are in the most absolute sense of the world word entitled to do this. Yes, but should they? Like, yeah, and people claiming that a. Uh, the criticism is useful or valid, mm-hmm. or they're helping you. Mm-hmm. Which don't you want to know that I don't like your work? <laughs> yes, which they're not because the criticism is never constructive, or even if it is, like, firstly, so rarely does a uh, someone random on Twitter know enough about the art form to go. What they really mean is this didn't appeal to me. Or even you had an off night, but they wouldn't correctly identify the thing that made you have an off night. Yes. They, they, they don't know. um, And and often they're just wrong. You know, they're often, they're just like, no, you, this isn't what you like, or other people in the room liked it or other people, but. um, It wasn't to my taste or. Yeah. yeah. You confuse this wasn't to my taste with you are bad at this. Yes. Or you should change this. And, and but all... weirdly, it affects you, and it does. Like it does affect me. It does. It's, it's weird how much, and I don't know whether that's one of the things that makes me it uh, absorb other people's criticism and praise yeah. far more in both cases far more than is healthy to do. Yeah, and that definitely affects how I behave, and and always has. Even before I was doing anything creative or anything, I think. 
I think I'm more sensitive than most to the fear to the fear of other people's opinions of what I'm currently doing or me. Yeah, I think that's a, a trend certainly in stand-ups and maybe more and more with people who live their lives more and more publicly, yes. but that we see ourselves in other people's eyes. That, you know, the way that you know you're a good person doing good things is because people around you say you are rather yes. than some inherent sense of value or worth or confidence or... It, it's weird that to do stand-up takes the most bizarre combination of confidence and insecurity. Yes. Yeah, it's, it really does. It, it's such a weirdly... Well, you need to be confident enough to keep doing it. You need to be self-aware enough to keep getting better at it, to yes. know where it's not good enough and to be able to improve. You need to have some level of self-criticism, self-awareness. You need to be confident enough to stand on stage and try to make people laugh, but also insecure enough to need to do that. That's a fire or smoke alarm. In, but, it's extremely sensitive. It's not a smoke alarm. It's a you're making toast alarm. Yeah, um, that's that's also the uh, that's the analogy alarm. Yep, that's it. <laughs> <That's the, laughs> That's well, I the mean, explanation. That's the explanation alarm. It it is um it's a super interesting thing because because you're getting constant feedback, which is constant criticism. You tell a joke, and the audience either laughs a lot or laughs a little or doesn't laugh. Yeah, and, and that's that feedback. Is direct criticism instantly in the moment. And that is feedback that is absolutely they are entitled to give and it, is useful and is useful critical feedback. That and they're is, giving and they're giving it involuntarily and. And that crowdsourced in a way, apparently crowds in general, like crowdsourcing works because large crowds in general weirdly converge on expertise. That's really interesting. To an extent anyway. There'd just be various experiments where, you know, getting a lot of people to guess at the thing ends up, does, ends up being weird. The average of that ends up being weirdly close to correct, to correct stuff. That's interesting. Um, but that's almost exactly what a crowd, as an audience, a crowd is. Like, you, you are polling a lot of people, except, except they're not independent actors because a crowd is influenced by the rest of the crowd. Yes, there are. So I'll give a, a, one example is I was speaking to somebody who very proudly has a very loud laugh. Yes. And uh, was actually speaking to his partner, but she was saying he sits up right up the front and has this loud laugh. And I said, if I can give a little bit of kind of reverse feedback, you should put him up the back. Because yes. then it's like the loud-voiced people, you put them up the back of the choir because then they carry everyone forward, whereas... Yeah, or in the middle, like right in the middle, so, yeah. kind of sp so it spreads around him. Whereas if somebody's up the front of the show and has a very distinctive loud laugh, particularly if they don't laugh at the exact same place as everyone else is laughing, they become part of the show. And then the decision of the rest of the audience to laugh or not is filtered through their perception of that person. Yes, and sometimes positively and sometimes negatively. Yes. Yeah, I had a lady come to a show of mine in Adelaide and it was a toxic combination in that she was very on drugs and <laughs> uh, laughing in the wrong places. She'd already seen the show, so was laughing slightly in advance of the punchlines. Oh, no. Um, in quite a performative way. And then the second row was all very young women who were, you know, in that way that young women can be very much performing for each other right and so they didn't like her which meant that they didn't like the things that she was laughing at which meant that they didn't like me and it was just like flipped me right back into high school bullying mode and it was probably the most aggressively i've ever done that show the most <laughs> resentfully i've ever been funny um, and that's so tough as well because when you're doing a a sort of fringe show yeah an edinburgh or melbourne or whatever show you don't have a plan B in the same way you do when you're doing stand-up. Yes. If you're doing a 20-minute stand-up set or even a longer stand-up set, you have the ability to pick and choose and do material in different orders and maybe yeah. go into the crowd more or not go into the crowd, uh, pick something higher energy, lower energy, whereas yeah, I'll a often show, say at a and club particularly show. a show like you do, you know, it's it's on rails to an extent once you, obviously your performance and the way you deliver it changes, but you yeah. you can't mess with the structure too much, otherwise yeah, the show collapses. if I'm in collapses. a club, I'm there for the audience. If I'm in a my show, yeah. they're there for me. Like that's the in my head how it is. I, right. They'll take what I offer and they can either like it or not like it, but that's the limit to which they have control over the gig. Right. Um, but yeah. I, w I was thinking about this confidence thing recently with, with my Patreon stuff because I put out this trilogy last year. Right. And it was, I wanted it 
done in a particular way. I wanted to record it as a three-hour show um, because it was a three-hour story in my head. I wanted to, It was kind of as, as much an artistic experiment as it was anything else. And I pitched it to the ABC and I pushed it through and I not a lot of people had very much confidence in it. And then it came out and, you know, has done very well and has had really lovely feedback and got, you know, nicely mm -hmm. uh, chosen by the Apple editors as, you know, one of their 2018 top podcasts. I would not have done that if I hadn't had this podcast and the feedback I get from this podcast. Right. Just that sense that I couldn't do something that I believe in. And also because of this podcast, you have a certain built-in audience where you can assume that if if you listen to this podcast, it must be because they like you to an extent yes. and your views and your worldview and how and how you are, which means that they are predisposed to like and listen to listen to and like the trilogy. Yes. Which means you can be pretty sure that at least a fair proportion of the podcast listenership, which you can quantify, is going to listen to that. So you go, oh, at the very least, this number of people are going to listen to it and they've got a good chance of enjoying it. Well, yeah, and that this is one of the different things about, you know, I'll do, I'll, I'll write poetry sometimes or I'll do painting, and that is so much less dependent on an audience. And you have this history of right. people who were incredibly unappreciated in their lifetimes as painters or musicians or, you know, whatever it happens to be, poets, and then afterwards they became successful. You don't really get that with stand-up because you no. do need a consistent feedback loop. You get stand-ups who are... Uh maybe less celebrated in their own country or whatever, but did better in other countries and things like that. And, yeah. Or, you know, had a strong cult following, mm. but never really... There but, needs to and be And then a... later on their stuff got replayed and played a lot more. Yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That there, you, you can't by the very... There's no one like, oh, the great undiscovered stand-up who's... Here's his tapes from his bedroom that were found by his mum and exactly. published after his death. Well, the, the audience is to a certain extent your canvas, yes. right? That you are, and and you're trying to replicate some sort of experience for each new audience. That there's something essential about the performance that is repeated, but it is always going to be a different performance because the audience is always different. Yeah, it's like like people who do you know chalk pavement drawings or something i don't know what i'm i'm just talking nonsense now anyway i thought that was interesting <laughs> no it, it it absolutely is and it's um how how did it feel to you once you sort of presumably you were i don't know how much the trilogy was even edited because they already are like fixed shows but i'm sure there was some editing and some well, tweaking it was interesting I, I i would have done things a little bit differently i think because i only did it once i only did the one three-hour show once right. which is not recommended you for putting together it's not but on the other hand sometimes that's good because one of the things that happened with my album recording is which is still sitting there just <laughs> sitting there as de as dead uh, bits right now on a on a hard drive um is multiple shows recorded over multiple nights which means suddenly going like all right and what you normally do is you pick one key show and go this is the best one and then you sort of swap out bits yes where but, it got a better laugh but on this one, one when i started listening to the footage even more i was like well i want to scrap this entire first five minutes because this that was all housekeeping mm. that was ingratiating myself with the audience but i don't want the album to start like that i don't want this to be the first track of the album so then i'm suddenly thinking well, what can i put instead there what can the opening bit be and then you're like i basically got a jigsaw puzzle together an entire from a good stand from a good hour but like i've got a jigsaw puzzle this thing to, and you know there's something different about a good hour to and the you, album and then you end up being crippled and it, you know because the if some things certain things feel different in the room to how they do in the recorded format yes well this was the thing that happened with the trilogy which was that because i hadn't practiced it at all that i was performing some of them for the first time in a year or almost two uh -huh. years for some of them uh as the three hours wore on bits started to drop out Right. So in the end, it ended up being actually a really interesting kind of um, editing experiment, which bits I could do as a side, which bits I could, you know, speak into the ear of the listener and say this is actually the end of the joke. Or So did you record stuff after the recording that you then dropped in? Yes. So okay. then the first show is basically as is. The second show... Because it's got many characters in the show, I brought in voice actors okay. to read the lines and there's much more kind of music and storytelling uh, radio play elements. 
But those voice actors weren't there for the live recording they on the night. They were not there this was for the live recording. Later. That was something that I added later. And then the the third one was more of a, a jigsaw puzzle in that way of all of the content was there, but at the time that I was saying it, I was like, oh, I forgot to say that bit. I'll go back. I'll just say that bit now, and you have to laugh as though I said it. So at that point, but also I'd been with that audience for three hours, and they were so on board and so lovely that they yes they helped me with that. And they must have already been fans to a large extent, people, because it cause yeah people random punters don't normally agree to watch three hours of a stand up they have yeah, not seen. They which, might take a chance on an hour. They often do in Edinburgh and Melbourne and so on. Yes, but but to ask someone to give up a significant chunk of their day, you yeah, you don't fly someone into a three hour show generally. Yeah, uh, so I that was also that was one of the reasons why I only did record it once because I just thought no one is going to come and see this. Right. And definitely no one's going to come and see this if they have two chances to see it in that way that people might come and see a one-off. Yes. Um, so, but, but all of that was just kind of learning experience stuff. The fact that I had the confidence to do something that fucking self-indulgent. Who does that? How did you feel when you signed off on the final version? Because presumably there's a point where you, where like you've done the final edit, then it gets mastered or whatever, it's already mastered, but then... There must be a point where you go, all right, the tinkering is, as, as it has to be with any work in any art form, you, there's a point where you have to go, it's not, it's never finished, but like, well, this that is. Was, yeah, I refused to be a perfectionist about it, really. Yes. I had this editor, Bryce Halliday, who was really good and had all these innovative ideas. And I basically worked off the script, the transcripts of the text rather than listening back to it. Because I thought if I listen back to it, I'm going to hear all of the falls, all of the stumbles, yes. everything that I've gotten wrong. And you're going to go mad about that. You're going to be like, and that's what kind of what happened to me as well. You just sort of hear like every time you, ah, that's like, I said that word weird. And then you go through every instance of you saying that word on each of the four yes. or like five or whatever, however many shows. And you just go like, oh, I said that weird every night. I guess that's how I say that word now. Yes. And then you get it. And then you spend half a day thinking about how you can't say that word. So there were only a few things where I was like, no, that person can't be the ac voice actor. I don't like that voice. That needs to be sounding like this or the accent needs to be this. Mm -hmm. And then other than that, I just worked off the text, jigsawing it together in text form and then let, let the sound editor do his job. Say, I want this kind of sound. And he'd say, what about these things? I say, you choose. So that that way it felt a little bit, a little bit more collaborative, a little bit less personal right um and that was the way that i got it done but it was also on a deadline which helps yes because it had already been sort of commissioned and booked and ready to yeah yes so yeah the, i think the, the kind of core of that was that i wouldn't i definitely would not have had the confidence to do something that was that ambitious if i hadn't had support <laughs> Yeah. And if I hadn't had this kind of ongoing output to get that support. Were those three shows that started off as three separate festival shows? Yes. So I'm, I'm sure the people listening might know this already. Savage was the first one. Mm -hmm. And that was a show that I wrote in the midst of really hard times. Yeah. And then I wrote The Resistance in answer to some of the questions that raised to me for me because it was a very early show, but it was like super intense. And some people were saying, well, that's not comedy, it's theatre. And I was so I wanted to prove some stuff. I wanted to do a show that was emotionally affecting without being something that was instantly relatable. Everyone has a mum or a person who is in that position related yeah. to them. Um, so that's a really relatable story. And was that show good because everyone can understand that story, or was it good because I wrote it well? So I wrote this story that was very, very, um, unlike most people's lives. I grew up in this weird, rambly, falling-down house with all of these strange people that my granny had brought round, and it kind of it talks about all of uh, things that people can't relate to. I wanted to see if I could have a similar emotional impact. Mm -hmm. And so about halfway through writing that show, I realised that those two shows work together. So the third show I wrote deliberately as a trilogy to kind of draw together some of the threads and the themes and the, and the, the family narrative that runs through it is sort of completed. With but also in a show. way that would make it stand alone because you took it to festivals for people yes. who hadn't seen it, necessarily seen the previous two shows. Yes, it had to work on its own. And it is the most stand-up-y of all three shows. And it's right. the most technical because it needed to tick certain boxes to close certain doors 
without being obvious that that's what it was doing. Right. That this is the conclusion of this thread, this is the conclusion of that thread, this is the answer to these questions that were raised without being obviously and then. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, 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 as a technical exercise, really interesting. Um, so the answer is it was sort of deliberately a trilogy by about halfway through. Gotcha. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know if I would do it again. Maybe maybe you have to do more next time. Maybe it has to be a quadrilogy. Yeah, see, this is the problem. If you become a kind of a stunt performer, yeah. then that's no fun either. You do 10 seemingly unrelated shows in 10 consecutive years and then, like, realize, reveal on the final one that actually they all link. Yeah, or the, the first word of each makes a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. Or will I? I don't know. I'm currently at that point of writing a new show where I'm talking to, you know, PR people and everything and they're telling me what my show should be about and I have to put a blurb in and have an art and all of that with a show that isn't written yet. Which is another weird thing where you have to sort of sell yourself and sell your show. It's much easier to sell a show than to sell yourself. It's much, which is why I think it's easier once you have a show that you can go, this is about this, yeah. rather than just go, why are you interesting? Yes, like equally. I was, I was really good at flyering in Edinburgh when I had to fly for myself back in the day for mixed bill shows that I was on and a sketch show that I did. Yes. Because in both cases I could, I was, I don't mind flyering and I'm actually pretty good at it, but I would never have to talk myself up. Mm. But the second you're having to prove yourself, it again, it feels like that kind of school, like, oh, I've got to kind of make friends with the cool kids for some reason. I've got to go up and go like, I'm great and I should, you should like me. Yeah, which is awful. I, I always used to take other people's flyers, take little stacks of the flyers of my friends so that I could, I could stomach flyering for myself. I would say, oh, here's a range of options right. and this is mine as one of the options. This is what's good about all these people. Do you like talking to audience members before shows? Uh, no. Nor do I. I hate it. And there are some comics who love it who are, I think... I mean, so, I, I will talk to them while they're coming in if I am already on stage. Right. That's a game that I will play. Because then you are, because then the show has kind of already started. You are... Establishing the framework of the show, yes. Yes, which, but I, there are some comics who are naturally convivial people. Yes, and I'm not that. natural extroverts. And, you know, I, I was with one the other day. It was his show. And as the audience is coming in, he hosts the show. And as the audience is coming in and stuff, he's chatting with them and bantering with them and joking with them. Yeah. And they're joking back. And it's, and I'm looking at that going like, no, I, I slink in the, I hide in the corner if there's no green room and hope that no one sees that my face is similar to the face on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> like I really, I, yeah. I hate the, I, I hate the idea of someone seeing me before I am the show. Before, yes. before I am forming an impression of you that you don't entirely have control over. Yeah, because I think think I'm thinking like, oh no no no, you've come to see show Matt Kershen, who happens to have the same face and voice as this person you've just bumped into in the bar. But that's no, that's not what you've come to see. Yeah, I you've like you're currently you've currently talked to the very unimpressive and real you know, life Matt Kershen. Not really. Ha that happy about chatting to strangers, Matt Kershen. Yeah, I, I like I don't I like talking to people who've seen my shows, but not before immediately before the show, during the show, or after the show. Right, like the next day, if they come up to you in if you're in Edinburgh or whatever, and they bump into you in the street or in the bar, and they go, "Oh, we saw your show on Tuesday," and whatever, and really like it. I'm again, I'm very happy about that. And even even after the show, I'm okay with it. If you if I've had like a beat or whatever. Like, I don't mind that. and in, in I don't Amer mind it. I, don't, I particularly don't mind it if it's podcast listeners because then I have a, I feel like they have more of a sense of me as a broader person. Yeah, I definitely had that. Recently, I just did a few shows in Australia and I do this podcast, Probably Science, which you've guested on. And yes, it's a great podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, but they are, it has a fairly decent Australian listenership. Mm-hmm largely due to will anderson but it's um <laughs> man he is the fairy godmother of podcasting in australia he really isn't is he? <laughs> it's just like ah he has chosen us uh yeah but by him coming on our show a couple of times and me doing his show a bunch of times we have a a disproportionate australian listenership mm. per percentage wise anyway 
And so I had a fair few, like after each of the shows, there were normally a few people from that podcast. And I, I love chatting to them because yeah. firstly, they're generally very nice because they are people who have devoted tens if not hundreds of hours to listening to a comedy science podcast <laughs> like it's generally very there is a selection mechanism at play there that tends yeah, to mean they're the kind of person exactly be... it's filtered through it's a type or, or a few different types but each of them types that i'm happy to spend time in the company of. Yeah. but also like that because they've spent so much time listening to you and they know it's not someone whose only experience of you is the 20 to 40 minutes that you're on stage or yeah. an hour if it's an, a festival show that's their only experience of you and then they come up with a whole like oh, where'd you get your ideas from or the or the or the sort of joke banter or any other things which are done in the best faith and whatever but just make your heart sink a bit yes or or you're expected to still be on as well yeah. that's the other thing i i feel like straight after the show you're still performing and you're still naturally yes and if that's part of the job then you can sort of stomach it but it doesn't feel like a, a genuine interaction it yes. does feel like they're trying to get some bonus material and, out and again of there are some people who are naturally that who are brilliant at it like um uh i i remember a few years ago i was in i can't remember which town center and there was a big queue coming out there was a huge line of people outside it coming out of a bookshop mm. and i realized it was michael mcintyre who was signing his book mm. uh and yeah, Michael is again someone who's like was about a year or two ahead of me on the comedy circuit, but certainly someone you know we came up with and then watched him just explode. So I went in to say hi, which took a little bit of work to get past the two massive security guards that were stopping people from jumping the queue and getting to the front. But uh, he just seeing seeing how on he was for mm. everyone, mm. and it was genuinely impressive. But he's always been that person, but he was consistently funny and fun and engaging. For every single person who came up. And he was probably doing that signing for... I don't know how many people... How long it takes to get through that many people from a book signing if you are... Two or three hours at least. Yeah, if every single person you're chatting with, bantering, finding out their names, signing it in the book and taking a photo. That's a long time. But I'm pretty sure from start to finish he would be completely on. Mm, and Consistency. Because he doesn't... Because he is one of those people. He's constantly on. Whereas I'm very much the sort of... I could do that because I would have to, but I would have to see it as a performance, and by the end of it, I would be exhausted. Yeah, it, it's something that you're doing rather than something that you're being. Yeah, I would be like, I have done, just done a two-hour show. Yes. Because it is not naturally me to be. I would be because because if if you're not on in show mode, I'm very self-conscious, <laughs> like very, and it's a it's a switch. Like it's definitely. Um, it, it's a mode for me it's like dropping into a mode and then dropping out of a mode yes uh, which everybody does to a, one degree or another the way you are around your parents is different from the way you are around your partner which is different way if you bump into your primary school teacher you do have everyone has different modes yeah. to a certain degree it's not an inauthentic thing but I think some people are like if they walk into a room they are naturally exuberant Yes. And they enjoy it and they thrive off it. And they just like being like, you know, the center of, uh, in, and not even like from selfish point of view, they just like being, oh, here comes fun times and I'm going to be, uh, I'm bantered with that person. And they'll, t they'll I'll joke about them and they'll joke about me and it's all fun and games. It's, whereas for me, it is like, okay, I'm going to do this now. Yeah. Well, this for is me, a decision and it's a gear I have and it's a gear that I make a living from. Yes. It's for me it's more of a, a presented piece of work. Yeah. That I've I've done this thing. I've made this flower arrangement and this is for you and it would be weird for you to come up afterwards and demand I do another flower arrangement for you. Right. Whereas on the podcast this is how I am. You know me. This is well, it's again, not a different mode. Yeah, I think that's the other th yeah, when you talk about podcast listeners coming up to you after the show where when I if I'm doing my podcast or doing this podcast, it's a bit more performative than it would be if I were on stage doing stand up because you're still trying to not be dull and you're still thinking about interesting things, you know, in a way <laughs> yeah. that if we were just sitting here in a room by ourselves, we might be on our phone for a few minutes or we might just like natter about nonsense. We are nattering about nonsense anyway. But, but uh, yeah, I know what you mean in that way. But you're, you're on a bit more, but it's like, you plus 20% rather than you plus like 80%. I think of it as fourth date conversation. That's a great way of thinking about it. When, with this podcast, it's like, I don't want to know where you went to school. I don't want to know what your favorite color is. I want to yeah. know what you think about stuff. And that, and you are slightly heightened and you're trying to impress somebody to a certain extent or you're trying to 
give them the benefit of the doubt but, or it, it draw something out of them in an interesting way. But you've had like those first three dates already where you're not like, oh God, what if I just blurt something out that just makes them instantly hate me? You're like, no, yeah. they, we've got past the... Th they've come back to me a fourth time, which means we've got past that initial fear. Yeah. So there's some there's some comfort and there's an, an authenticity that is like you're not being someone you're not. Yes. At that point, it's a it's a more serious engagement with two human beings. That's my that's how I think of it anyway. Yeah. Like how like did you date date? Would you go on dates with people that you never, 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 never. Because I I did for a while and I got that's an interesting point. relatively decent at it. Yeah. But again, each time it did feel like switching on a gear, like switching on uh, a performance to an extent, you know. Uh, but I, I got to the point of like, I don't mind talking to strange again in, in a very con constructed way. Yeah. So, you know, meet people off like a, the dating sites or apps and go to a bar or restaurant or a coffee yeah, shop. Yeah, I've never done that. That's but never been. It got. Like doing stand-up, I think, to an extent, once you get past the nerves of doing it the first couple of times, it becomes, all right, it, It's this isn't an alien concept now, and I can do it. Yes. And I've done it a few times, and it's gone fine. Yeah, but then you'll also have that job interview question, right? Yes. That if you do a couple of job interviews, you realize that at some point that you can win, almost certainly, that you can be impressive, that you can be this best version of yourself. Yeah. And it's not just about whether you can get the job, but whether it's a job you want. Right. So it, I think there's a phase for everyone when they're young and dating of uh, where dating is just, could anyone ever want to be with me? Can I impress anyone? Can I make anyone like me? Yes. And for some people that is never a question that is resolved because either they're not great at that particular game or... They meet someone immediately, and that's and the for end. some people, on the other hand, it's not even a question. I'm like, there. Are, I think there are some people who are like, yeah, well, you know, you go out and you, yeah, and then you get laid, and that's it. But then there's a the question: if you're really serious about it, if you're looking for a real relationship, it's not just about impressing them; it's about giving them a good idea of who you are, and seeing if that's what they want. Yeah, not just this best version of you, but who you actually are. Right. Um. Yeah, and then. In the way that you can get, if you can get a job, you don't want every job you could get. Um, I remember talking to my friend Alex and I was telling her that I don't like someone I'm dating to have seen me on stage first yeah. or see me do stand up for the first few times that we meet. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I'm like, that's not the version. It's a very fake version of me. But she, and she's a musician and she was like, well, but it's also, it is also a part of who you are and it is, it is you, even though it is a, only a version of you. Would you, I mean, the flip side of that is, would you want somebody who you were going out with never to have seen you do stand up? No, I think they need to see that. Yeah, exactly. It but, is part of you, but, but it's me, not the I, lead. You don't want it to be the lead. You she was making some good thing. arguments that it. It doesn't have to... In my head, again, it's like a fourth date thing. Yeah. Fourth or fifth date thing. Um, in her head... And she was making good arguments for like, no, of course you can date someone who saw you on stage before they saw you in person. I think musician I, is different from stand-up in that way, though. It, I think it is to an extent. Because you really are just stand-up. You are presenting a very small part of you as if it's all of you. Yes. And You're putting forward like, here is... Here is 1% of me that I'm pre pretending is 100% of me. Well, not just that, but it, that it's an element, there's an element of uh, relationship about the stand-up with the audience. It's, it's similar or an analogous thing would be with a therapist or a psychologist yes. or a counsellor. There isn't an interpersonal, or a sex worker, there's an interpersonal element to the engagement that shapes your future relations. You would not necessarily, and I know plenty of people do it, but I don't think it would be a good idea to ask a counsellor on a date after they've seen you for a session? Yes. You'd want to ask them right. beforehand. There are quite or... strict ethics rules about yeah. it, against it. Um, and, but also, when you're on stage, you you are doing a lot of the things you would do on a first date, which is <laughs> talking a bit about yourself, being a mixture of self-deprecating and cocky, yeah, and 
being funny. Like, they are all sort of first date things that you do of, like, here's who I am. That you do, mate. <laughs> right. But, like, you know, I think I think everyone does to an extent. Yes, everyone tries no. to be, like, this is who I am. Hopefully, we'll make each other chuckle a bit. Yeah. But also, I'll be a little bit a little bit confident, but at the same time, show some vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, and that is all something you do in stand-up, but you do it in such a heightened fashion that I'm, like, in my head... I can't You're live irresistible. up to... Well, in my head, I can't On live stage. up to stage me. Yeah. Because stage me is a lot more... Imp- and that comes down to the same thing as after the gig talking to audience members. You're like, no, stage me is, in my head, more impressive than real me. Although actually probably in reality, less interesting than real me. Because stage me has to talk about things that can make an audience laugh every... 20 seconds yes and if you're trying to make someone kind of insufferable in a real conversation and actually you don't really get into interesting things you get yeah and people who are like that in real life are horrifying to be around for any extended period yeah i can't imagine what a dick i'd be if i didn't do (laughs) stand-up because i think i would be the worst person in an office (laughs) like i think I mean, oh my god you would be i mean i hope i would have some sense not to be but i feel like if i didn't get it out of my system but then, then the flip side is I end up, I was at a, a friend's birthday party uh, about a month ago. Mm. And they're all people, from, mostly people who do various artsy things, but they found out that I just stand up. And and I, once that happened and they'd never seen me do stand up, I then felt so, I just wasn't feeling funny that day. And I had a gig to do later and I wasn't like, I don't want to be on. I just wanted to have a conversation. Yeah. But I felt, and maybe this is my insecurity, but I think I, think I felt like, I was being actively judged by a couple of the people that I was talking to for being unfunny because <laughs> <laughs> it had been introduced as like this first in the stand up. And then I just wasn't being a funny person. Yeah. Cause I'm not interested in being a funny person. It's like somebody saying, this is a model and, a pose. and going really. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. How, how Ugh. really people want to take photos of you, <laughs> but they pay you to that for that. Yeah. yeah. Just, I just want to make sure again. So, when the money changes hands they're taking a photo of you but the money changing hands is them paying you that's the direction that the money is going for this photograph yeah exactly yeah it it felt it did feel like that and i i don't know it whereas there are other comics who are you know the extroverted comics who are here comes happy fun time where for me it's like all right Here's time to turn on happy fun time. Which is a depressing way to think of it, except that it is fun and it yeah, is happy. But it and also it's... is fun. And I, when I'm doing it, I enjoy it because that's yeah. why I enjoy doing it. That's why I've made it my job to do that in front of audiences of strangers. Yes. And you are good at it and you know you're good at it. And I, and I do have fun doing it, but for short amounts of time. And it makes me tired afterwards, which I think it doesn't. I, I remember, I think it's a fairly, a simple, a simplistic, but fairly common description of introvert versus extrovert was just like does being in a room full of people give you energy or take energy from you yes and the answer for me is both yeah i think so a little bit of both and i mean this was a really interesting thing i just did sidekicking on andy zaltzman's review of the year show at the soho theater and the premise of the show was i'm his great aunt gladys who's coming out of a coma after 50 years and he has to explain the world to me. But the show started at 9.30, the doors open at 9, and he does 10 minutes at the beginning of the show. Yeah. During which whole period of time I am under a sheet on the stage. (laughs) So my sort of two personalities were in complete allegiance at that point because I'm there, I'm in costume, I'm under this sheet, and I was just reading a book on stage for 45 minutes how many would the audience twig that someone's under the blanket or does it come as a complete surprise every night when you're revealed it depended a couple of nights people would shout my name and to try and see if i would react or not i'm quite good at sitting still the upside of a buddhist childhood um Uh (laughs) and uh once or twice people shrieked when i moved uh brilliant because it, it was such a shock to them and they hadn't put together the the shrouded figure on stage with the the person but uh yeah it was it was really fun it was a really fun thing to do and i i mean i was a ridiculous character in that show which was also fun because i do my kind of quite intense personal stand up 
you know, whether it's personal stories or personal opinions or wrestling yeah. with ideas, I try to. So it's so it was fun. It's definitely just funny to, have to put the silly wig on and a silly wig, silly accent. I'm trying to remember which sketch group it was in Edinburgh a few years ago. I think it was Sheeps. Yes, Those, they're that, great. They're a trio, right? Yes, they um, are. But they started their show at the beginning of the show. It was, it was such a silly joke, but I, it, exactly the kind of silly that I love where the audience filters in and there are three things on the stage. There was like a blanket and like a box or something and something else, like clearly hiding three humans, <laughs> like very obviously. So then, and it's just on stage as the audience filters in and then the lights go down and then like whatever the blanket's removed or the box tips up and the other thing and three people stand up but they're just not those three people. And then the real three people come on and shoo them away. (laughs) That is a great gag. It's a great joke. That's a really good joke. So where can people find you online, Matt Kirshen? Oh, yeah. Uh, You can find me and talk, well, you can find me at Matt Kirshen. And I think on the, on Twitter, and I think there's an underscore in there on Instagram, but I don't do Instagram very much or well, but (laughs) by all means, find me on there too. Uh, probably science is the podcast it's a great and, podcast yeah, i think we're going to be going to australia hopefully in february to do some live shows oh fabulous and that is generally just on the internet and then i'll i'm normally in la and touring america a bit uh although not as much because i'm writing on jim jeffrey's show but you can see my you can try and pick out which words i might have written on that one <laughs> if you watch that on comedy central or all wherever. the good jokes all the good all jokes. the good ones if anything makes you laugh it was almost definitely me <laughs> and had nothing to do with the other like nine very talented people <laughs> who I, I get to share an office with, uh, or Jim himself, who is quite handy with the funnies. But, uh, yeah, it, it's all it's me, all me. I'm the puppet master. No, everyone else there is window dressing, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Uh, you were yeah, saying you're struggling with confidence? Was that yeah, the Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's, the weird, it's confidence and insecurity awkwardly jarred together. Perfectly combined in a delicious mixture. Thank you so much for coming on. Alice, and thank having you so much for having me. Bye. Bye. Lolly rifle doll, lolly rifle day.